from the I don't know what to say. I'm just speechless. To the We see all sorts of life-changing moments at McKinney competitions. How would you react? Cars, houses, tech bundles and more from just £2 a ticket. No purchase necessary. For competitions, rules and conditions, see mckinneycompetitions.com. Crime writers write about terrible, terrible things happening to people, but in person they're always, almost without exception, very, very, very friendly, very nice people. So that's like the opposite of <laughs> what what yeah. you'd expect. It's like comedians not really being funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they say. Crime writers don't often actually really kill people. <laughs> and the idea of the arts as a living was was seen as fantasy studying. People from here don't make a living in the arts. No, they don't. Nobody does that for a living. But when I think about it now, I come from Armagh. And I think of people of my generation from the Armagh area that have gone on. To make a living. I know people. I know people, more people have gone on to make a living in the arts than I do that went on to become doctors or lawyers. I often find sometimes the short stories be a lot. My short stories be a lot darker than the novels are, because you can go places where maybe a reader wouldn't follow you. In a novel, they will for a short story because they don't have to sort of mire themselves in it for so long. Kind of took on a life of its own. Then every pretty much every literary festival. We wound up playing at over uh, a few years, uh, which culminated in us playing Glastonbury. That was the voice of one of Ireland's finest modern writers, and he was born and bred right here in Armagh. Since his first crime novel, The Ghosts of Belfast, or The Twelve as it's also known, um, Stuart Neville has been wowing critics, readers and his peers. John Connolly and James Elroy count themselves amongst his fans. This is your host, Elaine Ingram, and for this week's podcast, um, I spoke to Stuart about his recent book of short stories, The Traveller, his upcoming novel, House of Ashes, his musical endeavours with his band, Fun Loving Crime Writers, and a whole lot more. Hello, Stuart. It's really, really nice to meet you. Um, I can see you're sitting there in your office surrounded by guitars. Um, and we'll talk about we can talk a bit about that um, later. But uh, first of all, the first thing I want to ask you is about I just I'm just after finishing The Traveller. And I have to say, um, I was just so impressed by it. Um, the, your book of short stories, which was just out last year, um, and, you know, the atmosphere that you create throughout um, is just brilliant. And, and um, the introduction by John Connolly like, says it all. He was really impressed by you. And he tells the story of how he met you um, when you gave him your very first novel, which is The Twelve or uh, The Ghost of Belfast, which is also known as. Um, so he gave the perspective of how he met you and you handed him your manuscript after um a book uh, event and he didn't have a clue who you were you were you know just an aspiring novelist I guess at that stage and that was in I think 2009 so could you tell us a little bit about that that from your perspective yeah that was in um Dunleary and I, I had my publishing deal at that point um but the book was a long way off coming out um and it was the Dublin Literary Festival and they had a crime strand that was being run in Dunleary. And I'd, I'd gone down to it and it was the first uh, crime writing festival I'd ever been to. And I really didn't know what to expect. Um, I 
had some brushes with the film business and went to the Galway Film Festival some years ago with a film and found it the most hostile, unfriendly, unwelcoming environment. So I was kind of expecting something like that. And John was one of the first people I spoke to, and he was so lovely and kind and welcoming, as was everybody else, that um, it was such a relief to find people who were actually friendly and welcomed a new writer into this, this what I find since is a very collegiate, very friendly scene. And John himself has been immensely kind to me over the years, starting with reading that book. And I think as John points out in that introduction, it's a real sort of stomach-dropping moment when another writer, an unknown writer, tries to hand yeah. your manuscript. Because, you know, we all have the set line, which is my agent doesn't allow me to read anything else by other people. Um, which, first of all, is true, but also is usually a handy kind of get-out for these things. But um, John... <laughs> Probably against his better instincts, read the book anyway. And um, yeah, he said he felt a bit guilty. He was sitting there, you know, a weight <laughs> in his hands. He said, You must have given him those sad eyes. <laughs> I think I did. I, I know I know. I was incredibly nervous at the time. I think I was shaking. He said you're very personable, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that whole weekend in Dunleary was, this is my first event of any kind uh, that I was able to go to that I could claim to be a writer. And I, I met a lot of people that weekend, including Brian McGilloway and uh, Arlene Hunt and Declan Burke, Declan Hughes, all these Irish writers. And as I say, they were so welcoming into yeah. this scene that I assumed to be kind of like a, a, a closed kind of club, but it wasn't. Everybody was very open, very friendly, and, and they seemed genuinely pleased to see a new face. Um, and that's been my experience of crime fiction in general, is that crime writers write about terrible, terrible things happening to people but in person they're always almost without exception very 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 friendly very nice people so that's like the opposite of <laughs> what yeah. what you'd expect it's like comedians not really being funny yeah <laughs> as they say <laughs> the crime miners don't often actually really kill people <laughs> but um were you expecting him to were you, did you just hand it to him then and just kind of think well that's the end of that or were you were you really hopeful that he, he would he would look at it i mean and then when he did read it you know he said immediately like this is the best Irish crime book that I've ever read I, I didn't know what to expect um again particularly as a as a very much a newcomer at that time I really didn't know if or when or what would happen if you'd read it or not and I certainly didn't expect the reaction I'd actually got from him and um I know he started handing it around to other people then to encourage other people to read it and um he was incredibly supportive uh, at that part of Part of my career and has been ever since but particularly around when i was starting off he was he was uh, one of those people who really held a hand out to me he's one of the kindest people yeah. that you'll meet uh, within crime fiction i, I, I hesitate to use the word nice because nice can be faked but i don't yeah. think kindness can be faked if that makes yeah. sense yeah. Because john is genuinely kind um and not just to me but i think to to, to all writers that he encounters he's one of those one of those people that didn't lift the ladder up behind him yeah and you, I mean, it was hugely successful. I mean, the you, you won awards, the um, LA Times Awards, and um, you know for the for the best book, and um, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, particularly. Obviously, it seems in America, really, really took off everywhere. But I mean, it's a, probably a hard hard market to crack now over there. But do you think because of the subject matter, because you know, it's not something that's written about very much. Uh, you know, Irish crime noir which was very, very, very much steeped in Ireland and in Northern, in Northern Ireland. 
and that went down very well um, over in America. I think uh, a lot of it was due to timing. I think I got I was a bit lucky with um, uh, the Ar- for the most part the Irish American audience embraced that book. Yeah, and then that has kind of a ripple effect out to the more the wider crime audience. Um, so I think in many respects it was it was luck in having the right book at the right time in America um, when people were opening up to stories from other places and. I was kind of was kind of riding a wave of Irish crime fiction at that time. Um, yeah, so it's, audiences there uh, very much took to it, um, more so probably than they did on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, but I've talked about this quite a lot about this in other interviews. Northern Irish fiction, and, and the title of the book was changed to the Twelve. Well, yeah, that's that's the, the thing UK. I was going to ask you about. Yeah, because it wouldn't have gone down as well here because people would just tend yeah. to. And there's, this is something I started to kind of push back against um, as a writer because I feel it's quite discriminatory. I used, to, I used to accept it as a commercial reality, but I, I don't anymore. But the, it was actually it was actually Colin Bateman, another local writer, who said to me long before it happened, you know, he, we're sitting having a pint somewhere, and he said to me, you, they're not going to let you keep the title, you know that? And I said, right. it goes to Belfast. He said, yeah, they won't have Belfast in the cover of the book here. I didn't pay much attention to it. The time he turned to be absolutely right. It was a quiet word was had in the run up to the publication in the South Atlantic that uh, they didn't want Belfast on the cover. So the title was changed to the 12. Uh, it, was that purely for commercial reasons? Purely for know. commercial reasons. I mean, it was, I mean, it, it's fair enough. It's based in reality in that um, at that time, certainly there was an antipathy towards fiction set in Northern Ireland. Um, and oddly, nowhere more so than Northern Ireland itself. Um so at the time, I reluctantly accepted the change. And if you read the back cover of the book as it was published in the UK at the time, you would have no idea it was set in Belfast. Yeah. Um, you know, that was really buried. And through most of my books with my previous publisher, the setting of Northern Ireland was quietly kind of glossed over. Um, whereas in America, the Northern Ireland setting was seen as a selling point. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was how the book was pushed and why it sold there. And again, at the time I accept that, but I don't accept that now. And I, I, I feel that it might have been a commercial reality, but it was, was based on prejudice. Yeah. And there's another way to, to dress that up. And I've come to the feeling now that it, a publisher should be challenging prejudice rather than pandering to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my next novel upcoming uh, is out in February. How's House of Ashes, it's yeah. very proudly Northern Irish, can be more Northern Irish if I've tried. Um, and I don't want to hide that anymore. Uh, and I think it's time publishing as an industry stopped uh, the tendency towards, I'll, I'll call it regionalism, for want of a better word. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, there's no, I mean, there was a time, I'm very good friends with Val McDermott, for example. And there was a time she was told that they couldn't sell Scottish crime fiction. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to buy books set in. Scotland, she was told. But do you think this would, it would since become usually successful? So. Do you think it would be different now, though? Because um, you know, um, Northern Irish crime seems to have be having a moment in terms of television procedural, you know, crime procedural dramas and things like that. You know, the likes of Line of Duty and Bloodlands and all that. So it seems to be having a moment. Do you think if that book had been published now, there would have been a different reaction, and you you would have been able to keep the title? 
Possibly. It, it, it's kind of a complicated question. I, I do think there's been a shift. There has been a change. And I think a watershed moment was the fall a, yeah. few, a few years back. Um, yeah. um, we've since had been sticking with, with uh, TV or TV programs. We've had Dairy Girls. We've had, as you say, Line of Duty. You know, it's, the idea of Northern Ireland as a setting for stories that aren't necessarily about the Troubles, I think, is becoming more accepted. And I think a lot of those walls have been broken down. Within the literary scene, you've also got uh, Milkman winning the Booker Prize, a book that's very, very Northern Irish again, written with an accent. Um, so I do think things are opening out, and I think the market is maybe more open now. And I think, you know, I'm trusting my new publisher to know that, that sort of rock has been started to roll a little bit, they'll maybe keep pushing at it yeah. and try and get, get that acceptance. And um, yeah, I do, I do think things are more open now. The only thing is, I don't think I would write The Ghost of Belfast today. Which is the other side of that question. It was very much a book of its moment. Yeah. It was written in the spring of 2007 when um, it was written against the backdrop of the St. Andrews Agreement being thrashed out. And the idea of the political situation here going from completely hopeless to actually having some chink of light in the, in the, in the, coming in with the storm being reestablished and so on. So the, the book was written against that backdrop um, and it's very much of that moment. So I don't think I would write that book. Yeah, I mean, it's very... In 2021, you know. Because there are references to everything that was going on at the time in the book. So I suppose, yeah, it would definitely have to be a different book if you were to write it now. Um, but your new book, tell us a little bit about um, House of Ashes. Um, tell us a bit about that, your new book and when is it going to be out and it's coming out next <laughs> it's, year. Well, it's actually out in Ireland. It's coming out in America on the 7th of September. Um, but I think it's going to come out in Ireland actually around the same time. Okay. So Easton's, what they call the export edition, which should be going to Easton's and the airports and so on, should have that in early September. I'm not sure if it'll be available in the northern branches of, say, Waterstones and, and supermarkets, because that will be tied to the hardback publication in February right. of next year. Um, but yeah, it'll be creeping out from about September onwards. Anyway, it's set in um, rural Northern Ireland, in my mind, it's somewhere around kind of Dollingstown, Waringstown, that sort of area, uh, County Armagh. Um, a nice little farmhouse. Um, it's the house is called the Ashes. It's set amongst uh, ash trees, so the house is called the Ashes. And a young English woman moves there with her husband. Um, She's called Sarah Kane after she's had uh, a sort of a, a breakdown, as described. We later found out that there was actually a suicide attempt. Right. And uh, her husband, who's from this area, moves them back to this isolated farmhouse. As the story progresses, we realise that this isn't a healthy relationship, that it's a course of controlling relationship that she's kind of held under. And another story runs parallel. Well, after they move in, a few days after they move in, there's a knocking at the door early one morning and it's an elderly woman at the door screaming, this is her house. And why are they in her house? They have to get out of her house and where are her children. And the story then moves back and forth between two times. There's another story then runs parallel set in around 1959, 1960 of this elderly woman as a child, Mary, um, living as a prisoner in this house. So do you have the supernatural um, touch in here as well that you, you, you have tendency yeah. to? Yeah. Mixing your genres. Yeah, Mary, Mary keeps referring to the children that live in the house. But as far as we know, Mary's the only child that's there, but yet she knows of all the children that are there. 
Um, so that's three out of the three. And we see these two stories interleave and develop. Um, and Sarah finds out that something terrible happened in this house 60 years before that involved Mary and her. She tries to find out what went on. And um, yeah, and the story develops and these two women sort of develop a bond. And uh, we see how Sarah uh, finds the sort of strength to fight back against her abuser and how Mary finally finds the space to tell her story, what happened to her. 60 years ago. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it now. I mean, the reviews are, have been fantastic. You already have one review calling it your masterpiece. So, um, you know, that's something to, to definitely look forward to. You, you, you do have, a, you're, you, you have these themes going through your, your books. Um, there's a lot of, you know, domestic abuse and, you know, darkness um, and things like that. You know, where does that, where does that come from? You know, that you write, you write like that and you write so well from the perspective of women and children, especially uh, that first story in The Traveller, I, I don't think I've ever read such a harrowing, um, from the point of view of a very, very small child, uh, domestic abuse. And it, it's just written so beautifully. How do, how do you find that, writing like that? I don't know, it's, it's I, I think, um... Writers, to an extent, are kind of like method actors in that you have to kind of inhabit the character that you're writing. You have to, you do have to see or try and see the world and perceive the world as they do. Yeah. And um, yeah, there are quite a few, in that, in that collection, The Traveller, there are several stories from the point of view of children. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, I, I find I've always been able to do that, sort of slip into that kind of viewpoint. Um, And just knowing how resilient children are and how. Well, that child, love. yeah, that child in that first story, he was just so, it was just, it was what it was. It's, like, it's unconditional love and it's just acceptance of the world the way it is. And it's all the yeah. minutia and the little details that really just bring it. You can really feel that that's the way children see things. But to be able to it's, write that. Well, I think. I, the approach I've always taken for any character is, you, is to see the world as they see it and let them behave as they would within that world. And that doesn't matter whether it's a mass murderer or a very innocent child. If you let that character just be who they are in the story, it's not that difficult to, to maintain that. And the thing that strikes me about, about particularly children in abnormal situations, they accept abnormality as normal. Yeah. And just, you know, and, and any of us who grew up in Northern Ireland through the 70s and 80s, we just accepted soldiers on the streets, checkpoints, barriers, you know, all that stuff that happened. When I was a kid, you know, all the things I saw when I was a kid, you just accept it and go on about your yeah. life, you know, it's, it's and um, and that, that's, I, I thought, there's, there are a few lines in The House of Ashes from Mary as a child's point of view, talking about the abnormality of her situation. And she says, she says I never knew any different. That's just the way it was. Yeah, I did, I did read an excerpt from it, yeah. And yeah, you could see that. It was just saying it factually, yeah. And I think and very often children, unfortunately, in those terrible situations, they have a remarkable ability to just get on with it and just accept what's going on and just get on with it. And, and again, just adopting that, that point of view. And there are a, a couple of stories in The Traveller that are like that. Um, where the kids just 
they're in a horrific situation, but they just accept it and go and they just live. Yeah, it must be difficult though. Is it hard to write stuff like that? Is it hard to like leave your office and become normal again when you're writing, you know, hard subject matter like that? Um, I I think it's not a coincidence that um, an awful lot of crime writers tend to be reasonably chill people because they get a lot of that stuff out on the page. You know, you 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 cathartic. It's cathartic and you can work, you can kind of, it's a kind of a self-therapy a lot of the time, but it's also, um, there have been times, there have been occasions when I've gone to write something and I just couldn't, I, there was a subject matter I started to explore and then realised I couldn't put myself through it. Um, and I mean, also, uh, uh, I think some people, some, sometimes people think my books are more violent than they actually are in reality. Um, because I don't, often actually explicitly show the violence it very often it's hinted at that it's something that exists in that background in the world in the background rather than actually something that's explicitly on the page um so for example the story you're mentioning the first story in the traveler we know little boy is an abusive household but we don't actually see the abuse firsthand mm. um so although uh, i'm talking about sometimes through desperately bad situations, I don't tend to often show that face on. It's normally something that you look at side on, um, which is easier then for me to write about, but also I think easier for the reader. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm not interested in I'm not interested in kind of being salacious about that kind of thing or, or exploitative or sadistic with that kind of thing. I'm more interested in the person that's going through it than the act itself. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, that's really interesting because you know. You don't have to, um, you know, be explicit about things because if you paint such a picture, then the imagination of the reader is taken to that. It, it is in the detail. I mean, there was even one, I just noticed one part, something that I was reading, one of your stories, and um, it was, um, he he rubbed his sleeve, it was one of your, one of the thugs rubbed his sleeve and the, the snot trail across his jacket. It's just like, those tiny little things that um the reader can really visualize exactly mm -hmm. so you don't you don't need to put all of that thing in there's a television show i watch called mind hunter i don't know if you've seen that yeah yeah, yeah and all of that that is such just when you're talking about something like that the the it's all it's about serial killers and all of but there is no violence in it there's no it doesn't actually show anything and yet people yeah. just have this image of this being a really violent show but you don't need to do that to, to well, break the I, imagination a specific of example of that a specific example of that i did an event in dairy central library it's quite a while back maybe 10 years ago now i did it with Will McNamee, and it's my second book and i did a reading from it and it's a scene where a man sneaks into a house and kills another man and it's maybe about three four pages long and after the event, a lady came up to me and she said she enjoyed the reading, but it was terribly violent. You're reading, there was awful violence in that. And I had to point out to her that over four pages, there was one sentence of actual violence. Okay. Everything else was anticipation of it. And well, that must have been. And the surrounding of it. So that was, um, you know, a nice thing for you to hear that you were able to conjure up these images without actually ever, you know, actually saying it but you can still manage to conjure up the images that are, you know, what, what the story is supposed to be about. 
Well, it was gratifying, and that, and that was my intention, and I succeeded in what I was trying yeah. to do. Um, but again, I'm, I'm no, I have no interest in being sadistic or salacious yeah. in the writing. I'm more interested in the characters and how it impacts them. It's emotionally and so on, rather than the actual physical violence itself. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's more about the aftermath and the the and 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 using Northern Ireland as a backdrop to your stories and recurring recurring characters as well throughout your novels. Like you really come to get to know these people and you get to know this um, whole situation, the whole area, everything. It becomes like you know the, the setting is part of your story in all of your story in all of your books. You know, they say, write what you know. I don't know if that's true, but obviously, you know Northern Ireland. Do you ever, like, venture outside of that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I, I, I when I started writing, I was very, very resistant to the idea of writing about Northern Ireland. and Very, very resistant to writing about the Troubles. And I wrote two novels that are still unpublished and will remain unpublished um, before the Ghost of Belfast. Um, one was set in Florida, where I've still never been. And the other was set in Manchester, where I did at least live for a couple of years. Um, but then when the idea of the Ghost of Belfast presented itself, I knew it had to be set here. It couldn't be set anywhere else. And then that was the book that worked. That was the book that a publishing did. So I think that says something. So you think it helps writing where you're from or where you know? I mean, I know you're I know you're a big fan of Stephen King and mm-hmm. he he does that. He's always, he, I'm a big fan of Stephen King, too, especially like, well, I used to read all his books. I haven't read anything recently, but when I was growing up and he writes, all of his books are set in New England and Maine, you know, yeah. New Hampshire, Maine, and that's where he's from. So um, did you take anything from that? You also, um, you also used, just speaking of Stephen King, um, Halen Beck, he, he's done that yeah. as well. Did you get that sort of, that idea from him? Well, the, yeah, well, the idea of, of writing a, um, under a pen name, yeah, that was the Richard Bachman books, uh, yeah. uh, Stephen King used name, but yeah, I can't believe he back. Um, and those books were set in America. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> again, largely because they couldn't really be set anywhere else. The stories required that setting. Um, the, the thing about writing uh, American stories, I think for us on this side of the Atlantic, like I grew up as a kid watching Starsky and Hutch and the A-Team and... Uh, we still continue to absorb so much American culture and movies and TV and books and so on. It's not that difficult for somebody here to adopt that voice. Um, so that doesn't doesn't feel like that big of a step to set something in the States, particular, particularly as those books were set in parts of America that I know that I've been to and spent some time in. Um, But uh, again, again, it's it's having set those books in America. I, when I came back to write the House of Ashes, it became I think part of the reason it's such an Northern Irish book was as a reaction of against having written a couple of books set in the states. Um, sorry, away from you, your original question there. No, but what? No, I don't even remember what my original question was. There, I kind of, I think <laughs> I think I asked you two questions at the same time because I went off on a tangent. I was just thinking of Halen Beck, and uh, I know like. Um, is is it different? You're writing under a pen name. You're writing. Uh, does it? Do you t- step outside yourself because they're two different, very different books, you know, set in different places and you know away from what you had been writing. Is that the reason why you you chose to use a pen name? And does it feel different? Are you? Does it feel different as a writer? 
Well, again, the first thing on MacBook here and gone, um, like I said, it, it couldn't, it needed the idea of wilderness. It needed to be set somewhere with the, the kind of big sky and big stretches of, of open wilderness that we just don't have here. So the, the story itself necessitated the setting. Um, and once I started writing it and I adopted that voice, um, which isn't that different, it's really just me with an American accent. Um, the book was different enough that I thought it merited a pen name and I'm doing it under my own name. Um, simply to avoid kind of confusion. And if I had it to do again, I probably wouldn't have used the pen name. I probably would have published it under my own name. Um, but hindsight's a wonderful thing, as they say. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was kind of, once I made that decision to use a different name, it was kind of liberating as well. I didn't have to fulfill any expectation of what yeah, I, my existing readers might have wanted from the book, you know. Um, so yeah, it was good in that sense. It, it, it freed me up in a lot of respects. Um, and I did it for two books. Now that, that pen name is now dead and buried, it's gone, it's over with. Um, so I got that out of my system now, but uh, it was good. There were, I, there were two books I'm still proud of, I still stand over. Um, but as an experiment, it wasn't, I have to be honest, a huge success. Yeah. Well, what about the, I know that Here and Gone was was in development for a film. Is there anything happening yeah. with that? Or is it still, or is it just put on hold? It's, or? it's uh, I think the term for its development hell. Um, it's, I, I, I was sent a screenplay uh, a, a month or two back that's actually a very good screenplay based on it. Um, it's trundling along production, but not like an awful lot of books that get option. It's going to sit at the bottom of somebody's drawer for a long time and it more than likely won't ever see the light of day. Um, it's unfortunate reality. Uh, for every hundred books optioned, maybe one might get yeah. beyond development stage. Um, uh, it's not something I have any say or control over. So all I can do is put it out of my mind until somebody comes back and says they're actually doing something with it. Yeah, because well, I mean, sure, that would be a very nice, nice thing to happen. I'm sure that would help. But because I mean, you're obviously, you know, you're well known. You're you've as they say you've made it now so i'm sure it's um you're doing well for yourself but um for people for write, writing in general i mean it's very tough to make a living out of it when you're starting out i'm sure did you find that at the beginning and you know were you ever ready to throw in the towel or oh i mean i think you're i suppose because your first book was so successful maybe it was like it wasn't like that for you it's, it's, it's a difficult uh, question because every writer is different and every writer has a different career. I've known some writers who are very commercially successful but still keep their day jobs because they're able to do it. Um, I personally was fortunate to be in a position financially where I could live off my writing, but I was also finding at the time I couldn't, because I was running a, a business at the same time. I was a partner in a business. Um it wasn't a nine to five job and I, I just find I couldn't juggle the two and I had to make a choice, which was to go for the writing full time. Um, and I've been fortunate that I've been able to make a living at it uh, for more than 10 years now. Um, but I know an awful lot of writers um, who you know, sell decently and so on that don't make a living at it. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a difficult one. It's, and everybody's different. Everybody has their own needs everybody has their own kind of uh threshold they need to cross in terms of income to be able to just to, to justify it 
Um, I said, for me, I've, I've been very, very fortunate that I've been able to do it now for more than 10 years. Um, but it's, it is a precarious existence. Yeah. Um, um, in that there's no job security, but at the same time, who has job security these days? You know, how job security true. is kind of a thing of the past. Um, but uh, it's, it's something that's a surreal sort of bugbear for me is the idea of the arts, whatever branch of the arts you're working on, being devalued as a, as a career choice. Um, you know, when I was at school, uh, I can say this in retrospect, I went to the Royal School in Armagh. Yep. I can say this 30 odd years, uh, 30 odd years behind me, that the arts at that school at that time were viewed very dimly. Well, I'm the same yeah. generation as you, so I think that it was pretty much around. Uh, I'm from Dublin, but uh, so I think that was around. Uh, you know, it was it was everywhere. I, I think I found the same yeah. thing myself. Yeah, it's it was um, like go and get a real job. <laughs> yeah, and the, here's the thing. You know, I would. I mean, there there were one or two teachers that did encourage me at school at the time, in terms of writing and arts and so on. And and I was I was it was music, writing, drawing, painting were my strong suits. Um, and at the school I went to, if you weren't in the sciences, if you weren't in the sports, you were kind of nowhere. And the idea of the arts as a living was was seen as fancy stuff. You know, people from here don't make a living in the arts. No, they don't. Nobody does that for a living. But when I think about it now, I come from Armagh, and I think of people of my generation from the Armagh area that have gone on to make a living. I know people. I know more people that have gone on to make a living in the arts than I do that went on to become doctors or lawyers. You think of the Armagh area. There's James McGarvey. Oscar nominated cinematographer yeah. just out yeah. the road. Dara Carvel, very successful screenwriter. We've got uh, Michael Hughes, uh, actor, writer. Um, we've got uh, the young actor that was in Merlin, whose name has just escaped me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, Paul McNaney, very good friend of mine when I was growing up, uh, runs uh, Cahoots NI, very successful children's theatre group. Um, you know, I could go on and on. I could, I could rattle off a dozen people that are from just the little hometown of Armagh that are now making a living in the arts. And we all consume art all day long, every day. If I look, get on a bus and see a billboard with an ad on it, that's somebody, there are arts behind that. If I turn on the TV, title things is music, acting, writing, yeah. everything that's there. We absorb art all day, every day. Yet as a society, we put a little value on it. We say it's not a proper job. Um, I have consumed the art. I've consumed art constantly all day. Because I, I look around me in my room, there are books finds that people designed. Yeah. People in the arts designed those. Um, there's art all around me. I couldn't tell you the last time I had to use a lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> that's I've been true. A doctor once in the last year. Yeah. You know, people. You know, we 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 put a lot of value on things and very little value on other things. And the arts is one of those things that. It annoys me when kids are told you can't be living in the arts. Yeah. When I know you can. Um, and I, th I think we, in schools and so on, uh, we need a bit more emphasis on that, that these are real careers that people can actually have. You don't have to live in London or New York or Los Angeles to have these careers. You, you can live in Armagh, County Armagh, you can live in Belfast, wherever, and have a career in the arts. Lots of people do. Yeah. It's become more difficult. I'm not sure how good on that. 
No, it, but, uh, you no, that's a very uh, good point you're making, and uh, but it, it has become much more difficult. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are, are in the arts, and uh, you know, things like music, Spotify, um, you know, you're talking about undervaluing. It's like people are getting paid, seem to be getting paid. It's harder and harder and harder to make a living um, in the arts, as you say, and yes, it's all around us. And even things like, you know, big companies, like, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not putting down Amazon or anything, because, you know, I know you're, you're selling your books and all there, but um, we're looking at in Newry now, the only bookstore left in the city of Newry is Waterstones, is one Waterstones. Bookstores are just, dwindling and vanishing there's no record stores left in in Newry at all which is near where I'm from and um, it seems that there everything is going online and it's much more difficult for artists um, music is the one that's taken the biggest hit of all and I, I think I do think Spotify is evil I'll be honest with you um, um, I think a lot of musicians would agree with you there they're making pittance yeah and, and again it comes down to that devaluing of the arts um, you know, I, I saw this years ago. I used to work in a music shop in Armagh, a guitar shop, and very often there, the, the most the most of our customers were the guys who were going out and playing the pubs at weekends that would have their drum machine and be singing a few covers in the corner of a pub, um, and they might get their fifty quid or hundred quid at the end of the night. And the number of times you'd be told that they're going to get paid, and the landlord would say, oh, "I wouldn't have enough people in tonight. Can't pay you. What's that to pay you?" And that used to drive me crazy. And I remember one person telling me they were told, actually, it's just a hobby. You don't need to get paid for that. And we, society in general, devalues art to that extent that they think it's a hobby. That's not, not something that anybody should get paid for, even though we, we consume it all the time, constantly. Yeah. And um, that, for me, starts in education. But I think society in general needs to, to get to grips with that, that, the arts are one of the most fundamental things in our day-to-day -day lives, yet we constantly say they have no worth. And when, go when the government cuts arts funding and so on, I think we need to, to fight back against that because we're depriving future generations of career paths and nurturing in that field. And it does, there seems to be this huge disconnect between people, people actually perceive as something that's just a hobby or something that's wishy-washy or a waste of time and they don't make the connection between that and the advertising they see on the tv or the design of the book covers they look at of the design of the cars they drive or the aesthetics of everything around them of the music that's on the radio you know the, the, the people don't seem to make that connection between the stuff they're seeing and hearing constantly through their daily lives and how that stuff actually gets made yeah and even in, I mean, Ireland has such a tradition. I mean, even in terms of tourism, I mean, we are, we've traditionally, Ireland has been the place where the arts have thrived. You know, if you look back, you know, over the centuries, so, you know, trying to become something that, you know, more modern or whatever it is, commercial, uh, capitalistic, I don't know what you call it, and not recognizing that this stuff is all around us, just in maybe different forms. You know, I suppose it's uh, something that really needs to be looked at. Yeah, and you say it starts from the schools.
Get ready to shake up summer with the Get Active ABC Sunshine Fill Programme for kids and families. Get set for land-based adventure at our summer schemes, or why not get adventurous and maybe get wet at our Splashtastic Water Sports Summer Programme. There are so many things to do, and all we need is you. See getactiveabc.com summer for all the details. Um, but you yourself now, you know, you're talking about um, the arts and what you do. I, I, you, I, you, you've got all your guitars behind you. Now tell us a bit about your band. <laughs> your band, uh, the fun, the the fun loving criminal, the fun loving criminals. No, the fun, well, no, the fun loving criminals are a much more successful band than we are. We're the fun no. loving crime. The writers. fun loving crime writers, obviously. Yes, I don't know why that was in my head because obviously the connection. Yeah. <laughs> It's, what it, is uh, it murdering songs for fun <laughs> yeah it, it started off as kind of a gag a few years back there's a there's a big international crime fiction festival called BoucherCon, and it happens at a different city in america every year um and it was in new orleans uh about four years ago maybe four or five years ago and uh there was a band playing and there was a, a function for all the writers and there was a band playing and at some point, it was me, Mark Billingham, and Doug Johnson, an American writer called Bill O'Fell. And we somehow wound up on stage and busted our way through three songs and brought the house down. It went down so well. And, and a video started circulating online. Oh, that's only taken. And uh, Mark got a phone call from the Edinburgh Edinburgh Festival of Books as part of the Edinburgh Festival I said do you want a gig? Come and play the festival and Mark foolishly said yes before we actually had a band and so um, then in a panic we sort of called together anybody that we knew that could play and we wound up in our rehearsal room in Liverpool with me on guitar Mark Bellingham guitar and vocals Doug Johnson on drums Chris Brookmeyer at that time, in bagging vocals, Val McDermott on vocals and Luca Veste on bass, all of us crime writers. Um, we started playing and see, so yeah, we got together and I actually still thought this actually doesn't sound half bad. And we started pulling together lists of songs that involved crime and murder and misdeeds and bad behaviour. And we pulled together a set and then we played, I think it would be the summer before years ago, the summer we played the Edinburgh Festival, our first ever gig. And it went down brilliantly. Uh, uh, had a huge response to it and it kind of took on a life of its own then every pretty much every literary festival we wound up playing at over uh, a few years and uh, which culminated in us playing in Glastonbury uh, at, in 2019 wow. the last Glastonbury there was uh, for the time being and um, had you been to Glastonbury before? I hadn't I'm, I'm not a festival goer as big as I am into music I, I was never really into festivals um, so yeah that was an experience in itself uh, playing at Glastonbury and um went really well and uh, we were going great guns everything was going fantastically well I thought until obviously yeah uh, 2020 and the yeah. everything that's happened over the last 18 months or so it brought all that to a halt um, we are thankfully starting to talk about gigs now and before the end of this year again so hopefully touch wood things will start to come back and we can start playing again yeah where, where do you where do you get the time to you 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 turn out like a book a year, right, more or less. Mm. 
I'm supposed to. Don't necessarily always manage that. Um, well, more or less. I mean, you you kind yeah. of pretty much have. Um, and so, what would your schedule be? Do you get up in the morning? I mean, you must be very disciplined. To do you have your office? Do you go have your cup of tea in the morning and then sit down and write, or do you have to have inspiration or what way? What way does it work? Um, in theory, in theory, like again, the pandemic has kind of messed things up a lot for me. And that I would normally have my routine of doing the school run in the morning, getting the kids to school, come back home, getting a cup of tea, sitting down at the computer and in theory starting to write. Didn't always work right every day like that, but for the most part, that was the way it went. Or sometimes I would go to my local library with a laptop and write. I'd really want to concentrate. Um, and that's the way it's normally worked, but unfortunately the pandemic with uh, homeschooling and... Yeah, what age are your kids now? They'd be, what, 11 and... Uh, uh, seven and nine, about to turn eight and ten. Eight and ten, right. Um, so they've been at home for most of the last year, so that's kind of disrupted my workflow, unfortunately, and it's, it's been difficult to try and establish routine again. But hopefully as things settle down, I'll get back into that routine of just, it's fairly regular daily routine of uh, school run, breakfast, sit down to work, pick kids up again, that kind of thing, you know, it's... So does the right so does it just would you just sit there with your black piece piece of paper and just does it just come to you? Or I suppose you're absorbed in the story. So you know do you know where it's going next? When you write a book, do you have have the story already planned out in your head of where it's gonna go? Or does does it happen as you write? Um, this you could ask a hundred writers this question, you'll get a hundred different answers. Yeah, yeah. Everybody I, I for me I find I need an opening, I need a a point of departure and a point of destination. Okay. I need to know where the story starts. I need to know where it's going to end up. And pretty much everything in between is up for grabs, really. Um, sometimes if I'm feeling very methodical, but I'll maybe map out a couple of chapters ahead of myself. But never really any more than that. And I'll, I usually have some idea of the arc of the story of roughly, I tend to think in a three-act structure, I have roughly an idea what the three acts, the shape of them is going to be. Um, but even that can radically change in the course of writing the book. Yeah. Um, I have had um, several occasions where uh, uh, when I've literally been on the page as writing, the stories could take a complete left turn and go on somewhere completely different. Um, so we really, but I've always wound up with the same ending I always intended. Um, so those two things, I need that point to set off and I need that point to end up. And then really everything in between is just, matter sitting down and churning like word by word yeah yeah and it, it, for um now yeah for the traveler now um because it's short stories uh, i suppose that's that's a, it's a different thing uh, some of your endings actually some of them were very clever um <laughs> definitely i'm not going to give anything away but there is one story in particular that had uh, a very interesting took a very interesting turn was the 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 one with the the woman whose husband was terminally ill or he was dying and there was the euthanasia. I, I really like the way that went and the way it ended. Are short, is writing short stories different? How different? How hard is that now, writing short stories? I've, I've heard something somewhere before that um, writing, short, uh, writing a short story can be just as hard as writing a novel. Even people think because it's short, but it's a much um, more different thing. Yeah. I can't. I, I, I don't think you can really compare the two. They're very different formats. Um, 
and you can do very different things with them. I find there's very often a lot more freedom with a short story. I can take a chance and do things that I couldn't do in a novel. Um, which very often you find sometimes the short stories be a lot, my short stories be a lot darker than the novels are because you can go places where maybe a reader wouldn't follow you in a novel they will for a short story because they don't have to sort of marry themselves in it for so long. And the story you mentioned is a good example. The, uh, the short story is called Faith, but that actually became a novel called So Say the Fallen. Um, I turned that into a novel, but it's quite different. It has an entirely different ending. And goes somewhere very different with with the character of, of of the wife in that story. She becomes somebody very very different in the novel, okay. and that can be an interesting comparison. What you'll do with something that's maybe five thousand words as opposed to something that's eighty thousand words. Yeah. Um. And I find where short story is very good is is allowing you to have kind of a sideways glance at something. With a novel, you have to really look at and examine your theme, your subject, and really pick it apart. Whereas in a short story, you can just dip in and dip out, if that makes sense. You can uh, um, you can visit a subject without having to really pull it apart. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a story in there called The Green Lady, which is based on a local kind of legend from the Folly area of Armagh. And because it's a short story, it doesn't really have to explain anything. Mm-hmm. Things in the story just happen and they roll out and the story concludes, but there's no need to really pull well, out. That was very, I found that one very scary, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's no, and because it's a short story, there's no need to explain any of it. There's no need to kind of go into the words or wise or wherefores. You can just let the story exist as it exists. You don't have to. Yeah. Doesn't have to justify itself. If that makes sense, you don't have to. Yeah, sort of... because it's like a, it's just like a moment in time. You're you're pulling out yeah. moments. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what it is. Another way to look at it is this is going to sound very terribly pretentious. A short story is looking through the keyhole, whereas the novel is opening the door. Yeah, well, that's a good way of putting it. Actually, that's true because you really are. Yeah, you're going into the whole character and the whole world when you're in it. When you're in the, in a novel, but in a short story, yeah, you're just taking a little chunk, out of yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which do you prefer writing or do you have I assume you've written more novels so do you find it harder to write short stories or easier or does it just no, they, they don't take as long as you know I can write a short story in a weekend whereas a novel takes a year but right. uh, in terms of difficulty they're, they're much of a muchness um, and I like doing both I mean the stories and the traveller there's about 10 years worth of stories in that book yeah um, so you know it's, it's, it's not that one is easier or more difficult. They're just different. Uh, and I like both of them equally. I like writing short stories. I like that um, brief kind of hit and not yeah. having the commitment of having to stay with the story for a year. At the same time, you don't get to delve in the same way you do with a novel. Yeah. Um, and I've always liked both as a reader as well. I mean, you might, we mentioned Stephen King. Um, I've always felt that some of his best work is his, is his short stories and his novellas. Yeah. Rather than the big store stop novels, you know, it's it's things like um, the body, which uh, became Stand by Me, the movie. Oh yeah, it's great. It very yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. It was a great novella as well. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a very compact. Tight... But I find a lot of his stuff um, doesn't translate to the screen as well as well. He famously didn't the, hated The Shining, didn't he? Although I don't really understand why The Shining was great, but uh, yeah. but um, 
yeah, a lot of his books, most an awful lot of his books were brought to the screen and didn't really work as well. His, you really need to immerse yourself in his books, I think. Well, I think it's his shorter work that always translated better. So The Body, being a yeah. novella, translated well. Shawshank Redemption, again, yeah. was a novella from the same yeah, collection. True, yeah. Works as a movie. And Carrie works as a movie because it's a really short novel. Um, and Misery, oh, I, I think, is possibly one of the best uh, uh, adaptations. Again, it's quite a tight short novel so yeah I, I think his shorter stuff translates better to the screen but a lot of the uh, film people said about short stories in general it's easier to adapt a short story yeah well because it's, it's not much in a novel yeah, yeah yeah you can't fish a novel into you know an hour and a half or two hour movie no. in in general but um yeah another one of your fans um james elroy who had written um some a review of of um, the twelfth. He uh, your your writing style, the you know noir. Um, I love the way you have like these like sort of short sentences. You can almost hear the Dick Tracy, you know, <laughs> in your in your writing. You know, you can hear the voice of that. But interesting, I was um, reading something about him, and he was. Um, he does that very thing, you know, he has these like short sentences, you know, that go to the point, you know, it's a very crimey sort of thing. But apparently um, it was because he was told to shorten his books. So he just took out all the unnecessary words because they were too long. His publicist said his, yeah. his books were too long, so he just took out words. So that was an accident. But um, your writing style is very distinctive. Um, is that something you've just comes naturally to you or something you want? I think to? it's, it's, um, I think you'll, in my earlier books, I think you'll see more of the James Ellery influence, uh, uh, particularly the first and second books. There's that kind of staccato style where everything's very short and snappy. And Dennis Lehane as well will be another writer that I take that from. Um, I think I've moved away from that as the books have gone on. I think of, 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 of the, the influence is less obvious and I've maybe taken more influence from somebody like Megan Abbott. And I can actually see yes. Cormac McCarthy in there, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy as well. Again, he was someone I was reading a lot of at the time. I was reading those early books. And you, you see that that everything's very punchy and tight and not a lot of um, description. I, I have changed since then. My writing's changed since then, I think. But uh, it's interesting, the short story collection, because that covers a range of, I think the stories in there are from about 2008 through to uh, 2020. Yeah. You can see a range of stories, a range of styles in that book. You can see the change, possibly in that, if, if you... Yeah. You say The Catastrophist, I think, is one of the later stories in that. And if you compare that uh, to Queen of the Hill, yeah, which was the earliest stories in that, if you wrote, read those two stories back to back, you'd see quite a difference. Is that a purpose? Do you do that on purpose, or is that just a natural progression of your style? I think it's just an evolution of it. Um, yeah. And also, all writers are part of the reading, as my reading has changed. And what would you read oh. nowadays? Uh, the last book I really enjoyed was by actually it was a graphic novel by this guy holding a picture of him um, Adrian uh, Tomine a Japanese American writer um, it's called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist which I really enjoyed I've read some Shirley Jackson lately which I've been really enjoying she wrote uh, oh, yeah. The Haunting and the Haunting of Hill House, Hill House and, yeah. Um, I've enjoyed that. And I think you'll see that reflected maybe in the House of Ashes. Um, 
and Megan Abbott, I'm a huge fan of still. And um, yeah, and I've been going back, I've been reading outside crime, and I'm, I'm less likely to read crime than I used to be. I'm more likely to go back to something like a Western or that sort of thing, just things that are. Um, a book I really enjoyed recently was uh, Whiskey When We're Dry, and then the author's name has completely escaped me. But anyway, yeah, it's I'm less, <laughs> much less likely to read crime than it is. Yeah, I don't know how you find the time to read because you, you seem to be such a busy person um, with your music and your writing and your kids and your, <laughs> you, you, it's, it's all go. Yeah, it's getting time, time to sleep in the middle of all that is the difficulty. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we're, our, our um, time is going to run, run out here uh, on our on our Zoom call. Um. So it's been really, really nice talking to you, Stuart. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And I, I really am looking forward to reading House of Ashes now because uh, I thought The Traveller was great. I highly recommend it to anybody. Can I, uh, just might as well get a plug in. The Traveller is coming out in paperback in UK and Ireland uh, early next month. Um, you probably won't see it in the supermarkets, but you should hopefully see it in Waterstones and places like that. Well, we have to keep, we have to keep buying all our stuff in Waterstones and keep our bookstores open. Um, yeah, I think. And New Alibis in Belfast uh, has been a big supporter of mine. If you can get down there on Botanic Avenue and there's Bridge Books and Dremore. No, it's for those independent bookstores are still out there and uh, have always been very supportive of me. So I'd like to, if you can buy from an independent bookstore, if you have one yeah. in distance, get to, then, then please buy books there if you can. Keep them open. Yeah. And I hope to, that we'll see you out. Um, the front loving crime writers back out there on the stage. Um, rocking, rocking all the festivals. <laughs> hopefully, soon. hopefully. I was me trying to cross. I wasn't giving you fingers. I was trying to cross my fingers. I actually looked at some. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, hopefully. I hope. Uh, and uh, it's been a difficult year for everybody. Um, or eighteen months for everybody. I'm hoping maybe by autumn time we can take to the stage again. See everybody. Yeah. All right. Thanks a million, Stuart. Been lovely talking well, to you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to Stuart there as much as I enjoyed chatting with him. Um, and I definitely encourage you, if you haven't already, to go out and get some of his books because they really are fantastic. Remember to keep getting all of your news from our eye and I hope you join us next time for our podcast. To the We see all sorts of life-changing moments at McKinney competitions. How would you react? Cars, houses, tech bundles and more from just £2 a ticket. No purchase necessary. For competitions, rules and conditions, see mckinneycompetitions.com.